Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. The economic turmoil, turmoil in Europe uh, that, the, that the Greek debt crisis has touched off is calling into question the integrity of EU institutions, including the euro. It is also calling into question the ability of European governments uh, to respond to the immediate crisis, the fairness and the effectiveness of the response, and the credibility of European governments to address long-term fundamental structural issues that affect long-term growth. For now, the massive aid package that was announced over the weekend seems to have calmed markets, but the price tag is high and it is surely only a temporary solution. Uh, to rescue Greece, Europeans have not only pledged an extraordinary amount of, of funding, they have also violated uh, their rule against bailing out profligate member governments. And uh, the European Central Bank has become politicized, uh, now committed to purchasing EU member sovereign debt in what appears to be a coordinated action, also a vi violation of European rules. It is not the first time, of course. The EU long ago discarded its limits on uh, fiscal deficits and debt levels, and the latest actions only seem to reinforce perceptions uh, of a cavalier attitude toward the rule of law. Moral hazard looms large, and Europeans are asking themselves why they have to pay for the recklessness of the Greek government and possibly others in Europe. This is not just a German issue. Uh, the Slovaks, for example, are on the hook for some 800 million euros, more than 1% of their GDP, even though their per capita income is significantly lower than that of the average Greek. So far, uh, European uh, governments have treated the problem as a liquidity issue, but the underlying problem is severe. In yesterday's Washington Post, economic columnist Robert Samuelson wrote that what we are seeing in Greece is the death spiral of the welfare state and that global markets recognize that this uh, Greek problem of exorbitant spending is a problem common to most uh, rich nations. My colleague, Jose Piñera, has referred to Greece as just the first act of the coming fiscal bankruptcy of Europe. Indeed, taking into account uh, not just the explicit debt of EU members, but also the unfunded liabilities due mostly to public pensions and health uh, care systems, my colleague uh, Jagadish Gokhali has uh, calculated, tr calculated truly astounding uh, numbers. According to him, the true debt uh, of EU member countries is about 430% of GDP. Greece's true debt is 875% of GDP. So uh, as we look beyond this temporary uh, Band-Aid, what will it take for Europe to get back on the path? For growth. I'm very pleased to have with us today two speakers who will address uh, that long-term issue and the current uh, uh, issue of uh, how to resolve the immediate uh, crisis. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the Cato Institute Simeon Jankov, who is currently the Deputy Prime Minister and the Finance Minister of Bulgaria. Prior to taking that position last year, he was <coughs> a long time, uh, for many years employed at the World Bank. Uh, most recently as the Chief Economist of the Finance and Private Sector Vice Presidency uh, of, of the World Bank. He was the principal author of the World Bank's World Development Report in 2002, and he is among the 100 most cited 
uh, economists in the world, being a very prolific uh, writer and researcher. Significantly, he is also the, uh, the creator and lead author of what is the World Bank's uh, most uh, cited uh, publication, the Doing Business Annual Reports, which, in the case of Greece, has become uh, uh, an important index uh, that is being cited uh, as to uh, the problems in uh, creating, the difficulties in creating wealth in that country. It ranks, in terms of the ease of doing business, 109 out of 183 countries. I'm, I'm sure that uh, Simeon will say something about that and the other uh, very great challenges that Europe faces. Please help me welcome Simeon Jankoff. Thank you very much. Uh, the last four times I think that I was presenting here, I was presenting the Doing Business Report in various uh, years, so it's uh, uh, very almost surreal for me, but there is a lot of surrealism lately in uh, both Bulgarian politics and uh, European financial uh, politics, um, so it's interesting to present from a different point of view. Um, when uh, we were talking to Ian uh, Ten days ago, I think uh, two weeks ago, about me presenting something, I picked the topic of the euro, not realizing that it may be the hottest topic uh, by uh, this week. I picked it mostly because uh, it, uh, at the time I thought it was an excuse to talk about the lack of competitiveness in uh, Europe overall, and then what a small country, member of the European Union like Bulgaria, can do to increase its own competitiveness within, uh, within the European Union. But now that the euro has become such a hot topic, I will actually talk a bit about the euro and then spend most of my time talking about competitiveness in Europe and then finish with some uh, things specific to, uh, specific to Bulgaria. Um, so what has been happening to the euro lately? Well, you've, you're following uh, both what the finance ministers and in general politicians in Europe are basically trying to say. The euro is here to stay. Whatever we need to do, we will do so that uh, the euro uh, remains a strong uh, currency. And uh, indeed, some of the actions in the last few days have uh, shown that there is some um, resolve and it has met some success uh, so far. Uh, but perhaps over the following days, uh, weeks, we'll find out that more needs to be done. And I'm sure that more will, uh, uh, will be done. But underlying the questioning of, uh, of what is happening to the euro are, I would say, two sets of uh, issues. The current issue, or the issues that are currently discussed the most, is that a number of countries, Greece most uh, prominently, have uh, lived well beyond their means in the last uh, decade at least, um, and have uh, gotten into so much debt Official statistics uh, are scary. Some additional statistics that Ian just uh, mentioned, calculating the debt ratio different way, are even scarier. Uh, but basically suggest that countries like uh, uh, Greece, especially after joining the euro, have been lulled into complacency and have been spending enormous amounts of money that the economy simply does not generate and may actually not generate for some years to, uh, to come. If it was only Greece, we can uh, basically say, well, okay, that's understandable because, you know, being a southern nation in Europe and so on, the Greeks are naturally 
less uh, workaholic than the Germans, let's say, and uh, and even the Bulgarians. Um, so we can excuse it, but it's not only Greece. And well, Greece has been focusing the attention um, uh, of uh, most analysts and politicians. In fact, the issue is beyond Greece and covers a few other countries, some that we've started talking about lately like Portugal and uh, Spain, some that we talked about some time ago, like Ireland, and we are now returning to talking about uh, them. And uh, probably soon we'll be talking about some other countries in uh, in the European Union, either inside the Eurozone or also outside of the Eurozone. Because if you look, look uh, have a careful look at the um, fiscal situation across uh, countries, there are a few others, like the United Kingdom, that actually have... Uh, by official statistics, uh, higher debt levels uh, and certainly higher deficits than does uh, than does uh, Greece. So, uh, and I think the view on uh, the UK has been since they have an uh, election. Let's wait to see what's the outcome of the election, and then let's then assess how the new government addresses the deficit uh, issue. But since we've had an election, hopefully within. Uh, Hours or days, we'll have a new uh, government, and then the issue will be what's the UK going to do with its uh, budget deficit in the next uh, weeks, uh, months, uh, and so on. Uh, so the problem, in other words, is uh, is larger. It's not just Greece, it's a few other countries. Among them, large countries, large economies like Spain currently, and perhaps over uh, the coming uh, week or weeks, uh, the UK as well. Uh, and since some of these countries are sudden, but some are not so sudden, it cannot be that we can just say, well, the good weather in Greece makes people who are more interested in fun and less interested in work. Um, uh, so it's a, it's a broader problem. And I think the problem is that uh, over the uh, last decades, really, um, Europe, but certainly in the last decade or two more so pronounced, in my view, Europe has become increasingly less competitive relative to certainly Asia, uh, but also actually somewhat strikingly, given what's happening in the U.S., also less competitive over time than, uh, than uh, uh, the U.S. So I'll spend most of the time highlighting some of this uh, features of uh, European uh, economies that make them so uncompetitive. So what is it about Europe that uh, indeed that uh, makes it less competitive? Ian had mentioned some features of the environment for doing business, basically a lot more regulation than than the level of the economies may, uh, may suggest, may warrant. Uh, And Greece was actually, from the beginning of the doing business uh, uh, report in the World Bank, Greece was actually shown as a middle-income country that very heavily regulates, has fairly organized labor unions that prevent any uh, sensible pension reform, public administration reform, health care reform, education even reform happening. Um, but uh, and there are some other countries, exactly the countries that now are experiencing uh, some uh, questioning of their uh, fiscal behavior, like Spain, like uh, Portugal, like Italy to some extent, making the observation that the level of regulation and, of course, the uh, related level of taxation seems to be too burdensome for the level of the economy. Uh, in other words, if you're already a fairly rich country like Sweden, maybe you can allow yourself to have that level of taxation and uh, and uh, regulation. But if you are still a middle-income country trying to be richer and sustain a fairly uh, well-off level of uh, of existence, you should be more business-friendly. Uh, 
Uh, and now all of this is viewed as a fiscal issue, but actually it is not a fiscal issue. It's an issue of competitiveness. And the issue of competitiveness has to do with what level of taxation you have, and what, in the case of Europe, I mean, and also what level of regulation you have. And the short answer to this question is that Europe has a lot more regulation that is needed, uh, a lot heavier public administration that is um, that is needed, a lot uh, uh, or very little reform in some of the key social sectors, healthcare, um, pension reform especially has now come to the fore because of the uh, large budget uh, deficits in uh, in many countries, and somehow always the excuse that we probably don't need so much reform because we Europeans live in social democracies. We're already fairly well off. We're fairly democratic societies, so some of the harder reforms are for developing countries, uh, let's say in Asia. Um, uh, while some of the more right-wing tax policies that uh, that exist in the U.S., even, even though that's not quite right, uh, in fact, are also not for us, uh, the Europeans, because we live in a more sophisticated, advanced society somehow, and therefore we'll do neither one nor the other. We'll just exist the way that we are. Uh, and uh, for years, for decades, that sort of has worked, and now it's somehow being questioned and questioned simultaneously in many countries and indeed as we've seen over the last few days the uh, now the existence of the euro itself and its health and its future is also questioned and suddenly everybody is worried that maybe the paradigm that we've been living for in the last few years maybe since the creation of the euro needs somehow to change and then the question is is it going to be changed and where is this change going to come from uh, now, Europe, since 2000, or even since um, before that, had come to the realization that competitiveness somehow needs to improve. And in a typical European bureaucratic manner, it was decided that starting in the year 2000, we'll have the thing called the Lisbon Agenda. And in 10 years, by the year 2010, namely this year, Europe will surpass the U.S. in terms of competitiveness, and there are a number of indicators that were uh, put together in the Lisbon Agenda of exactly how we're going to surpass the, uh, we, the Europeans, are going to surpass the U.S. Ten years have passed, so at the end of this year, we're going to have the report on the Lisbon Agenda. Um, and uh, I'm sure that it will be very well written, and it will say that we haven't quite succeeded, uh, uh, but there has been some notable advances. If you look at the indicators, actually, it's quite striking. In the last 10 years, on every indicator that the European Union at the time, or the European Commission had created, Europe not only hasn't caught up with the U.S., but on every single indicator, it's gotten worse relative to the U.S. In other words, the U.S., with all of its hang-ups that it's had in the last 10 years, somehow has managed to separate itself even further from, um, from uh, Europe. Uh, and actually, the region that has done the best on these indicators, relatively speaking, is Asia, including some of the countries like China, like Vietnam, and so on, that are not considered... Uh, bedrocks of uh, capitalism, and yet they have done even better, relatively speaking, than either the U.S. Or, or Europe. But in short, for 10 years, Europe has done nothing to increase its competitiveness. In fact, its relative competitiveness has fallen in these 10 years, 
which has not prevented uh, uh, the Commission now to say, well, why don't we create another 10-year plan? Just like under socialism, there were five-year plans. Now, uh, in Europe, there are 10-year plans because it takes a lot longer to negotiate among the countries, so you need 10 years. And now there is a 10-year plan, which is called Europe 2020. So the idea is that between next year and 2020, Europe again will catch up and surpass the U.S. There are new sets of indicators so that we don't question the previous uh, uh, sets of indicators, and they are now hotly negotiated. And I'm sure that there will be a plan how in 10 years Europe will, uh, will surpass the, uh, uh, the U.S., and I'm equally sure that that's also not going to happen, given the discussion that are going on what indicators to use and how one can fudge them and, uh, uh, and uh, so on. Uh, and uh, if there is uh, something good about this current crisis, it is that, uh, that it's starting to put a lot more in a lot more serious manner the question of we cannot go the way that we have been going so far. So there, there needs to be some change. Uh, and some countries that perhaps previously were more complacent than it should have been in Western Europe are starting to get more excited about uh, the idea. But I think, and I'm going now to my third set of points that relate more to Bulgaria, that if there is a change, a fundamental change in the way that Europeans think about their competitiveness, it is not going to come from Western Europe because that's been tried so far, uh, but it is going to come from the, what's called the new Europe, the East European countries. And while these countries individually are quite small, um, put together, or at least some of them uh, uh, put together, they can create enough pressure and enough uh, uh, coalitions uh, with some of the reformer countries in, in Western Europe to be able to push through some of the uh, changes that are necessary for the whole European Union. Um, the reason that I uh, think so is that, uh, that uh, if you sort of put on a continuum, what are the reformist policies in the European Union from left to right, sort of from no change to, to sort of radical change, you would see that the most radical reforms over the last 10 years, regardless whether these have been under so-called socialist or not-so-socialist governments, have all been in Central and Eastern Europe and, and uh, of course, the Baltic. So these countries have led... Uh, led uh, uh, charge on, uh, on becoming more uh, business-friendly, uh, more competitive. In a way, one can say they have to because they started from such a low position, so they had to rapidly improve to be globally competitive as well. But some of these countries have continued doing it even after achieving a level, uh, reasonable level of, uh, of well-being and surpassing some of the old European Union members. One such country, which I think is the standard bearer uh, currently, is Estonia. So Estonia has done all the things that one can think are needed to uh, start from being um, sort of a basket case country in the former Soviet Union to becoming one of the best economies in Europe, notwithstanding crisis, notwithstanding uh, uh, various other issues, and, um, and hopefully within uh, days, within... Uh, uh, a few weeks, we'll uh, learn whether uh, Estonia will join the Eurozone, which I think it does, and I think it fully deserves to join. Uh, uh, the Eurozone will be a, a great, uh, uh, to some extent, uh, a great point to say here is a country that, uh, that had a lot of things to do, and they did them. And regardless which political party was in power, whether they were, relatively speaking, to the left or to the right, they understood 
uh, that these things need to be done so that Estonia as an economy, as a country, can do well in the, in the future. Uh, there have been a number of other countries in Eastern Europe that for long periods of uh, time have managed to sustain this type of um, uh, policy. So, for example, Slovakia under the... Uh, uh, previous to uh, uh, previous to governments in eight years has done a lot uh, to become a competitive uh, economy and indeed this is what my government is trying to do now in uh, uh, in Bulgaria in fairness some previous Bulgarian governments also have done some good things for example having by now the lowest um, uh, flat tax in uh, in uh, Europe 10 percent uh, income tax 10 percent corporate tax. Uh, before the crisis, we had the third laws, but thanks for the, to the fact that some other countries have needed to raise their taxes, we suddenly by default have become the uh, lowest tax burden country in, uh, in Europe. And it's, in fact, uh, uh, to some extent, uh, uh, upon our government to continue being that way, not to increase taxes and resolve otherwise our fiscal uh, uh, difficulties. Uh, but in thinking of a country, for somebody like me who has spent a lot of his time arguing and advising governments on how they should improve business environment, how they should uh, uh, reduce taxes, how they should reduce the uh, informal sector, all the good things that one needs to do to maintain a, a good uh, fiscal policy, and now being in government and saying, okay, let's actually do these things, what does it uh, involve? I, uh, to some extent, perhaps less than in some of my uh, fellow finance ministers' uh, uh, cases, encounter all of the issues that uh, I've been talking about, that Europe ultimately does not see a goal of increasing competitiveness, or at least so far has not seen this goal, as a meaningful goal. Uh, it's somehow too petty, too small, too non-European, so it's for the others. Um, uh, and I hope that this crisis brings it to us that it's very European actually to be competitive. And once we're competitive, we can also do some other uh, sophisticated European things. So of a country like Bulgaria, what are the main things that need to be done to increase competitiveness? Uh, business environment and business regulation, of course, is an obvious one, but there are many individual things that need to be done uh, uh, there, and these differ across countries. Um, but there are some things that all European countries, and when we, the finance ministers of Europe, meet, and lately we meet quite often, uh, that we discuss, uh, there are three or four items that I'll point out, uh, and then we can pick up in the Q&A session. One is pension reform. Without exception, when the idea of um, when Mr. Van Rompuy came to us three months ago and said so-and-so, the Lisbon agenda has been, I don't know exactly what term he used, but mildly successful or something like that, which in Eurospeak means terrible, nothing happened. Um, so let's have another agenda for the next 10 years. So what you finance ministers think is needed, without exception, the 27 people who are there put as number one pension reform. So it wasn't fiscal consolidation, although this is a very sexy word currently in, uh, in financial circles. It was circles. It was pension reform because everybody understands with the demography, without exception in Europe, demography is not looking too good. Uh, unless you have pension reform, and through this reform, you ease the burden of future public uh, uh, financing needs. 
Europe is in trouble, both individually countries as well as Europe overall. So pension reform. But how do you do pension reform? It's quite difficult. There I'm happy to say that uh, less than a week ago, last uh, Wednesday, my government announced pension reform in two steps, January 1st of next year and July 1st of next year. To increase the number, and while there are many parts of it, the gist of it is that we're increasing by three years the uh, by three the number of years that somebody needs to work in order to get a pension. So another way of saying we are, is the equivalent of increasing the minimum requirement for work years, uh, starting with a number of uh, categories that uh, have early retirement. Like if you are in the currently, if you work for the police, you can retire at 42. Uh, if you work uh, for um, for the army, you can retire at roughly that age, 42, 43. Um, and there are a number of smaller occupations. That's no longer going to be possible after January 1st. They'll have to work a little bit longer, uh, by three years to be exact. Uh, and then we're going to increase the from July 1st, the average level of, uh, of work, as I mentioned, for everybody by uh, three years. There are many other things that we uh, have announced in pension reform, but this is one step, and hopefully we can sustain it uh, throughout this year so that we can see it uh, uh, through. Uh, reform of public administration, badly needed everywhere. Uh, I thought that Bulgaria was bad in that, and a lot needed to be done. Uh, but then uh, some of my fellow ministers pointed out, this was before the Greek crisis really became apparent, that actually we visit Greece and their ministry, equivalent ministries, has five times more people than we do. And so therefore we shouldn't uh, reduce our stuff. In fact, we should increase it. This was the argument last fall. They no longer make that, uh, that, uh, that uh, point. But it's illustrative of... Uh, the vast differences uh, across countries in, uh, in the EU in that uh, respect. Bulgaria has quite a large bureaucracy still. And the last government, which was a tri-party system, and where the government was kind of divided, so you have three people, I have five people, and you have six people. So if we don't have enough positions, we'll just increase them so we all have enough. Uh, kind of contributed to this problem greatly. So actually, uh, the bureaucracy expanded a lot in the last four or five years. We so far in nine months have shrunk it by 11%. So 11% fewer people now work for the central administration that they worked last uh, July. But we need to cut it by about 20% uh, further. And that's actually one of the other measures that we announced uh, last uh, Wednesday, understanding that this is going to be quite tough. But uh, crises are good periods to do that because you can say, see, I have no money for you. So we either have to reduce salaries or we need to deal with fewer people. Some countries like uh, Romania have set low salaries for everybody. We've chosen the way of few better paid people, and that's part of our, uh, part of our strategy. Uh, and the last point that I would make is on higher education and science. Um, under the previous regime, uh, Soviet socialist regime, Eastern Europe, the former Soviet Union, had in some aspects quite good science, certainly the hard sciences, sending people to the stratosphere and so on, uh, having Sputniks and so on, good math people, good statisticians, good chess players. Bulgaria is the country that is the only country in the world historically that has had at the same time the world champions, both men and women, for chess. You didn't know that probably, but until recently Bulgaria had both the world champion 
men in chess and a woman champion in chess. We also, for a small country, were after the US, the second, and still are in fact today, the second largest power in bridge, which for those of you who know bridge know that it requires a lot of sports bridge. It requires quite a lot of math. So you'd say there must be some really good scientists in Bulgaria if you can have both chess and bridge, and there must be except that they didn't greatly contribute to the economy of Bulgaria. And while uh, we still have the Bulgarian Academy of Science, which numbers nearly 8,000 people, more, in fact, than our tax service, so we have more people who are in the Bulgarian Academy of Science um, than we have in our tax service, um, somehow Bulgarian science hasn't really been contributed much to anything, uh, really, but certainly not to, to, to the economy. And I think the reason that, that is the case, and my experience both in the U.S. where I've studied and worked uh, research, but also in the U.K., teaches me that one of the very simple things that you need to do to have science and higher education is to have actually the scientists work at least from time to time with students. So they teach students. Students get excited about science, have access to the best um, scientists, and then the scientists somehow in trying to, trying to explain to students what they do, realize that a lot of the ideas are actually rubbish and they give up on these ideas and then use the ideas that actually have something to do with uh, real life. When Bulgaria, as is the case in many of the East European countries, science is in the Academy of Science, completely devoid of any practical uh, touch uh, with, uh, with education, and then the universities just teach, 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 but the, the professors don't really have time and don't have the money, more important, to, to do sabbaticals, to do uh, research. So one of the other things that we announced this uh, past uh, Wednesday was to say, okay, we're going to merge these two systems. So you cannot just teach and you cannot just do science. We're going to have a U.S.-type uh, system where you do some teaching, but you also uh, uh, have the means, the resources to apply for grants and with these grants to get sabbaticals and uh, so on and introduce a system where the student and not the professor or the scientist is at the center of, uh, of attention of that system. Again, as in the other things that I've uh, mentioned, there are a lot of other parts in the, in the reform, but, uh, but, that's, but that's its just in Bulgaria. And that's not only while much of Western Europe does not have this kind of old-style uh, Stalinistic uh, Academy of Sciences, the educational system all over Europe is far, far worse than uh, the U.S. system, far worse than the U.S. Um, uh, system. And there has a lot can be made, and I doubt that the Bulgarian system will be, high education system, I mean, will be close to the American in, in the next three or four years during our term. But you can go quite a lot of ways to ensure that at least it provides some good basis for students who are interested in studying. Uh, and not just uh, receiving their degrees, to do, to do something good and to be uh, uh, helpful for the economy or for the public administration or wherever they go. So these are some of the main areas where we, the Bulgarian government, have put forward and said we'll use this crisis to do these reforms so that we both come faster out of the crisis, but also that we ensure that there isn't a next crisis coming, looming in a few uh, uh, years. And in that regard, well, many people, and I'll finish with this, many people think that Bulgaria is cursed by being a neighbor of Greece currently. I think it's actually a good thing because we can point out and say, see, 
if we don't do the, these uh, reforms, if we don't do them right, this is what is going to happen to us. Unfortunately, there are starting to be many other examples in Europe that we can point to, so it's becoming a long list. See, you cannot be like this, you cannot be like this, you cannot be like this, and I hope that together as Europeans we'll get our act together on competitiveness so that uh, we don't have many more examples and the current examples get resolved. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Our next speaker is Steve Hankey. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and also a professor of applied economics at Johns Hopkins University. He is a prolific writer and a columnist, a regular columnist at Forbes magazine. He has, over the years, been an advisor to many countries, especially on monetary policy and specifically on dollarization and currency boards. He's also been an advisor to the presidents of Bulgaria, Venezuela, Indonesia, uh, at, at different times. He played an in, important role in establishing new currency regimes in Argentina, Estonia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Ecuador, Lithuania, Montenegro, and uh, Bulgaria, where he is sometimes referred to as the father of the country's currency board. Please help me welcome Steve Hankey. Thank you, Ian. Um, I'll, I'll use the familiar form with you and Simeon, since we're all friends, uh, and maybe that will relax people so we can have a great Q&A session. I'll just make a few uh, remarks, and, and those remarks will be focused on Europe and particularly Greece, and I will get to competition uh, and some aspects of competition uh, in this story. First, let me begin with what I think the end game is going to be with regard to Greece. They will end up either defaulting or rescheduling their debt. That's, that's the end game. So you have to ask, well, uh, how did they get in this death spiral that they're in? It's a classic death spiral. We've seen many of them in the past, and uh, it just follows a script right down the line. Uh, entitlements, 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 unfunded entitlements. In other words, promise somebody something and, and, and don't come up with the financing for it, and pretty soon you have yourself in a fiscal-slash-debt crisis, and this is where Greece ended up. And in February, of course, they called in some outside advisors, uh, Professor Stieglitz for one, and, and the, the blame game began. The, there was a new government, of course, uh, the Papandreou government came in, uh, uh, in addition to heading the government, uh, the prime minister's head of the International Socialist, which is also a non-trivial uh, fact, I think. People have to put things in perspective. But uh, he started blaming everyone. The speculators were the first ones that got blamed. And then he, he, he went on a tear against his own colleagues in, in the European Union on several occasions. And, of course, the, the Germans really got whacked big time. They, they were a big cause of the trouble. Um, at the same time, the prime minister was running around to some of the same people passing the begging bowl indicating that the, the fiscal crisis could only uh, be abated if uh, they pitched in. Uh, this ended 
uh, rather recently. It, it went on for quite some time. As I said, it clearly started in February. Uh, it ended up with everyone being infuriated. Uh, a lot of time was wasted. Uh, it totally destroyed all confidence and credibility in the, in the Greek government, and, and nothing was done. Nothing, nothing was resolved. Now, ironically, after blaming the outsiders for all their problems, the Greeks have called in the foreign doctors. And this is in particular, in this case, it isn't just the IMF. This is the standard operating procedure. But we've got the EU uh, politicians and bureaucrats involved, too. Uh, I think this will ultimately be a case in which the doctors kill a patient. We've started the sequence not by what I think we should be doing, but rather with an austerity program. Uh, there have been promises that government expenditures in Greece will be cut. Uh, there, there have actually been some tax increases. They've actually increased the VAT two, two times already. Uh, un unlike Bulgaria, which refused to increase its VAT, by the way, uh, and, and did the, exactly the right thing. We, we, we'll get in, we can get into Bulgaria a little in the Q&A, maybe. We, we don't want to get too sidetracked with Bulgaria. But uh, there, there are no structural reforms outside of what I call fiscal structural reforms in, in the proposals in Greece. In other words, the rating that Greece has in the Doing Business Report, their, their 109 ranking, that's the way below anyone else in Europe and, and pretty much on the low side of the 183 countries that are covered, none of those kinds of structural reforms or, or structural metrics that are measured in the Doing Business Report are really being touched in, in, the, in the situation in Greece. Uh, so they essentially have adopted the, the classical anti-growth formula, and I, I think this is why I can state categorically that they will end up restructuring uh, their debt uh, or rescheduling it, if you want to call it that, or defaulting, if you want to call it that. Uh, what should they have done? I think they should have started with a, a big bang doing a number of things simultaneously in, in the spirit of New Zealand. Uh, and, and the reason I say this is in 1984, New Zealand uh, elected a labor government after the conservatives ha had created such a complete mess of the economy. The Muldoon governments, after being in power for many years, had uh, created uh, an intervened uh, socialist kind of setup in New Zealand, and, and Labor came in uh, with David Lange winning the election, and it turned out his finance minister was Roger Douglas. And if you check your Wikipedia, you can see what Rogernomics is all about. And Rogernomics is all about structural reform and competitiveness. And so they had a, a massive economic revolution in New Zealand after this 84 election, and, and that should be part of the Big Bang if we're looking at Greece. Let's just stay with Greece for a minute because that's really the epicenter of the problem right now in Europe and symptomatic of larger problems throughout the Eurozone. Uh, they should begin 
not with where the end game is going to be in reality, but they should reschedule our debt. Step one, that's part of the big bang package. Reschedule your debt. On the fiscal consolidation, we want a supply-side fiscal consolidation. Now, what's that mean? Well, that means, yes, you, you do cut government expenditures, but also you change the, the, the taxing setup. Right now, we have very high payroll taxes, very uh, onerous payroll taxes in Greece that are paid by employers and, and to some extent, uh, ultimately labor. So labor is very heavily taxed. You've got a big informal sector in Greece and, and a lot of unemployment. So what we w should do, I think, as part of the Big Bang, is eliminate the employer contribution to uh, payroll taxes, completely eliminate it. The other thing we should do on the tax side, a supply side kind of fiscal consolidation, would be to make the VAT tax uniform. Right now, there are three VAT taxes in Greece. This is typical, by the way, in Europe. You, you have the regular VAT tax, and then you have a reduced VAT tax that is about 50% lower than the regular one, and then you have a super-reduced one for other categories. So I would eliminate the reduced and super-reduced rates and, and just have one uniform rate for the VAT. If you did those two things, you would end up actually generating, even looking at it on a static basis, more revenue than they're, than they're generating right now. So it would be from, from a budgetary, even a static, simple-minded kind of analysis, you'd be ahead of the game by making that change. But more importantly, you would reduce the labor cost in the economy. The contribution of employers now is 7.8% of GDP. That's, that's how big the employer contribution is. So you would eliminate that, and that would, in effect, mean that you would have a 22% reduction in the overall uh, burden on wages as a percent of GDP in Greece by eliminating the employer contribution. You, you, would, you would lower labor costs you would make the economy more competitive. This is a competitiveness thing. Uh, you would also, obviously, if you were making the VAT uniform, you would increase consumption, uh, you would reduce consumption and increase savings and, and reduce the current account deficit in the country. So you get an external thing going on with the economy that would be favorable. Now, many people, let, let's, uh, let me make just one comment about devaluation, because there are some people, like Professor Krugman, for example, who is wringing his hands saying, well, the problem with Greece, they, they've gotten themselves into this straitjacket of the euro, and, and, and they can't devalue the drachma. They don't have the drachma anymore. They have the euro. So, so they're in the soup. There's nothing they can do. Well, as I've just pointed out, there is something you can do. You can, you can make a 22% reduction in the total labor cost in the economy simply by e eliminating the employer contribution to payroll taxes. Now, that is equivalent, by the way, if we assume that 50% of the devaluation would be passed through to the economy 
and this, which is probably fairly reasonable in Greece because it's a, it is a small open economy, you would have to have a 44% devaluation to be equivalent in terms of competitiveness with the reduction and elimination, I should say elimination, of the employer contribution to payroll taxes. So, so you get uh, a, a, a lot by eliminating the payroll tax. You get equivalent of a 44% devaluation of their currency if they still had a currency. And you, of course, don't get the inflation that would go along with that. And you don't get also the fact that virtually all the economy in the private sector would be bankrupt if you had a 44% devaluation. So I, I would propose that the, the end game, the ideal end game, would be a, a, a New Zealand kind of big bang where you get your reputation back, you get confidence back, and you have a pro-growth strategy that attacks the competitiveness and structural problems in a place like Greece. Thank you. Thanks very much, Steve. We have time for questions and answers. If you have a question, please raise your hand and uh, wait for the microphone once you're called and identify yourself and your affiliation, please. We can start up here in the front. Ms. Roman Hitchev, the EAF. My question is to Mr. Dankov. Mr. Dankov, uh, would you comment on the issue of the VAT, um, uh, hotly debated subject in Bulgaria, whether it should be elevated or not? Uh, what are your comments on this one? Um, well, whether it should be or should not be this the value added tax, whether it should or should not be uh, elevated. I think in general it shouldn't be elevated, but more importantly, we've decided not to increase it this uh, this year. Made a commitment uh, both as government and also to to everyone publicly, um, because I think once you increase value added, uh, uh, there are two issues. You increase value added tax during a crisis. You reduce uh, uh, demand. Internal demand in Bulgaria anyhow is. Uh, has not recovered from the crisis, as it hasn't, in fact, in most uh, European Union countries. So that may set us back further in uh, having the recovery. But the reason that I was, in particular, very uh, opposed to increasing uh, uh, value-added was that it also sets a bad precedent for uh, future potential increases. So basically saying we'll now increase it temporarily, but then it stays at the level that uh, it was because the moment governments have more money, they find ways to spend them, usually inefficient ways to uh, spend them. And my preference was to try and cut uh, uh, expenditures, perhaps even having a somewhat higher deficit that I had originally anticipated, but not increase the VAT because any change like that is usually a permanent change, or at least it takes a very long time until something terrible happens, as was the experience in, the, uh, in New Zealand, and only then you can uh, reduce it again. Uh, and I'm fairly confident that that was the, uh, right, uh, that was the right decision for us. Yeah, we'll take a question right here. Um, Jutta Tobias, Society for the Psychological Study of Social Issues. Professor Hanke, I very much enjoyed your very lucid explanation of 
structural reforms versus monetary policy and the logic of it. And my question is, how can we, or rather European leaders, generate the political will to make this happen? Because it's, it's about productivity gain as opposed to using short-term monetary measures to get the Greek economy back on track. But it's, it, the logic, I think, is not sufficient to, to generate the political will to make it happen or to the political pressure to make it happen. I don't have to push. Okay. Uh, yeah. The, it, this is a, a critical question because if if you don't have public opinion, even if you're a dictator and you don't have public opinion behind whatever your policies are, you're going to fail. You can't sustain them. So, so your question is 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 really the critical one. And and I think the problem is you you've got the politicians in Europe. Uh, you know, you've got, you know, starting in France, which I know fairly well, you've got soundbite Sarkozy, which, you know, these people are running around. They, they don't know what's going on. They, they get a brief from somebody and, and have a slogan. I mean, Sarkozy's spending most of his time attacking speculators. He's as bad as Papandreou, and he's supposed to be a right-winger. So... So they they really don't know what they're doing that and and so this is this is a a major problem uh and by the way not exclusively uh in Europe but in uh, the political class and chattering classes in general I find them so superficial I mean if you if you go through the back of the envelope kind of thing that I went through with Greece it's it's fairly clear you know it's you you could do it uh without much trouble uh, if you convinced the public that that this was going to get you growing, because if you don't grow in Greece, or as Simeon would say, if you if you aren't competitive, that's part of the picture. You, there there is no way you can avoid bankruptcy. I mean, you, you, again, you just work this in simple numbers out. I can give them to my grandsons, and they could work the things out. Uh, they're going broke. Uh, there, there's no question about it, and that, that's why. This will be really a, a, a long, drawn-out thing by the time it's all done. Remember, we had Argentina going through this, and and the my my good friend Domingo Cavallo was unfortunately, as he put it, the minister at the, the time of the crisis, and indicated that you know all the consolidation and all these things that they were trying to do to get confidence back in the economy and then calling in the IMF ultimately at the end the the, the sequencing was all wrong you you should reschedule a debt <laughs> if 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 it's going to be impossible to pay and you're fairly clear by looking at the numbers what they are <laughs> that's got to be upfront part of the original first step and you do a voluntary restructuring as long as I have the microphone, may I say one thing here? You're, you're the... Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, I, I want to change the topic, but, but Simeon mentioned something about Estonia that, was, that uh, is very important because Estonia and Bulgaria, in my view, are, are the same in the sense that they have the same kind of monetary arrangements. In other words, they have these currency board systems where their local currency is fixed at, at a fixed exchange rate to the euro and fully convertible into the euro. And so technically, in, in, in kind of a technical sense, they're, they're euroized, you see, already. So you can say, well, why, why is Estonia 
Estonia is very hardcore, by the way. Initially, when we put that currency board in, <laughs> they let some banks go to the wall within like a month after we put the thing in. I mean, th these people are tough in, in, in Estonia. Now, the Bulgarians, I wouldn't put them quite in that category of toughness. But, but, but the Bulgarians understand one big thing, and the big thing they understand is that they had a hyperinflation in 1996 and early 1997, and, and they realized that the problem was solved with the currency board. And I can, I can remember we put that currency board in in, in July, Simeon, and, and President Stoyanov told me, <laughs> I saw him about a month later and was reviewing the data, and he says, you know, this thing has actually worked better than you said it was going to work. I mean, they were down into single-digit interest rates within 30 days after they put the currency board in. The point here is that the Estonians and the Bulgarians, they, they own these systems. They put them in. The currency board is a Bulgarian currency board. The currency board in Estonia is an Estonian currency board. They know that if those systems, if they don't follow the fiscal discipline, which they followed in uh, both Estonia and Bulgaria, the thing will blow up like Greece. But they also know that they own it, it's on their watch, and no one's going to bail them out. And, and therefore, you have a completely different situation in Greece. Greece joined, they were allowed to join two years after everybody else started. The, the first one started in 1999, 11. And then Greece, they, they let them in in January of 2001 in, in the European Monetary Union. Of course, everyone knows they were lying about all, all the data they were presenting and everything else. It was a political deal. And the Greeks, why did they want in? They, they don't own anything about the euro or eurozone. They, they were in because... <laughs> They got a lot of freebies by getting in. And furthermore, they knew if they did the promise entitlements but don't fund them, somebody else was going to fund them. And if the thing really blew like it is now, someone would bail them out. So it's an ownership issue with these monetary arrangements. It's very uh, nuanced, but, but I think critical. You can't understand Bulgaria and their fiscal discipline or Estonia or Lithuania, for that matter, unless you understand they, they know they own these systems that were put in. They, they weren't entering a club to free ride. We'll take a question in the back right there. Uh, Fred Smith, Competitive Enterprise Institute. I was very uh, interested in your idea of bringing the scientists out of the monastery and back into, well, I wouldn't say the real world, but the university. You're aware of Moker's uh, work, I believe, arguing that the real challenge of, of entrepreneurship and competitiveness is linking science and development, R&D, and that only if the entrepreneurs are feeding from the scientists and then feeding back to the scientists do you get growth. That suggests competitiveness ideas, entrepreneurship ideas. Could you elaborate on a bit what you're going to do to go that next step and make sure that it's not just sterile scientists teaching sterile students, but actually plugging into the economy? 
that indeed is uh, is uh, the next uh, step. I wouldn't say that there are many countries that have succeeded doing this on a consistent basis. I would say that even in the U.S. there are pockets where this, uh, this uh, is working in particular um, fields, in particular universities, but even the U.S. I think has not reach the point where you can say entrepreneurship is truly uh, benefiting from uh, uh, from science and through research in uh, uh, in the US in Bulgaria it's it's there's there's no interaction between uh, entrepreneurship and the type of science that is currently done so we can uh, improve tremendously on what is um, what is uh, currently done. I think even in the first step among the students that uh, are currently in Bulgarian universities there may be a few future or, in fact, current entrepreneurs who can actually learn uh, something or, 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 or generate something out of, uh, of a research or science idea that currently is not done simply because they don't see the researchers, they don't see, um, uh, see the scientists. So I really think that uh, students can be both uh, great contributors to the type of research that is useful for entrepreneurs, for real life, so to speak, uh, for the real economy, um, because they can convince or, or interact in ways that uh, that scientists go in that uh, direction, and uh, the students themselves are the next entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneurial class. Now that leaves the issue of well, what about the the people who already have finished uh, universities and are the current entrepreneurs and they're struggling with an idea? Maybe they already have an idea on their own, but they don't know how to develop it, uh, uh, how to put science around it, how to make it uh, uh, happen. And the question for that is, well, where does this uh, happen? Some of it can actually again happen in uh, universities. One thing that. Another another feature that re- really distinguishes the U.S. Uh, educational system with all of Europe really is the so-called continued education. People who go work and then come for a master's degree later on in their career, both in management as well as in other areas, or from time to time take uh, uh, take class. And this is actually not only in entrepreneurs in private sector; this also entrepreneurs in government. Now. Until now, Bulgaria has had a lot of entrepreneurship in government of a particular type, how to get a lot of money out of a project uh, and put it in your own pocket. So I think there is a lot of such entrepreneurship in Bulgaria, not exclusively. I think Greece is actually the champion in Europe on that, uh, which is why it is at the level where it is. Um, So we need a particular kind of entrepreneurship that's productive. Uh, and that's a bit more difficult to teach. Um, but I think continuing education is one part of that. Now, you're not going to capture, my guess, is many entrepreneurs with that because entrepreneurs are fairly individualistic people uh, almost by, uh, by definition, but that gets an extra step. Maybe that's the second small step. And the third step, which is the step, step you're uh, pondering or describing, how to get the real entrepreneurs out there and get scientists to them and say, okay, well, you have a good idea, but you haven't developed it, we'll help you develop it. That I'm, I, I'm actually not sure exactly how, how to uh, do, but it certainly is worth uh, pondering upon. Yeah, one, one thing on the uh, inter, interrelationship between teaching and, and, and professions, in Bulgaria, it, it, there are a lot of, not only chess, but you've got the opera and musicians that, that are world class. And I, I would think that that would be a very good model because those, those music teachers are just not isolated in the academy. They're teaching students. <laughs> They're trade. 
So, so there are examples of this, even in Bulgaria, and, and the opera really is literally world class. I mean, um, so, so they 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 actually have indigenous things that they, if they thought about it a little bit, I think they could utilize. In the back, a question for the finance minister. You mentioned pension reform, but it seemed, as I listened to you, it sounded rather modest. Why not go the full way, like our colleague uh, Jose Pinera has been proposing around the world? We now have more than 30 countries that have a Chilean-type system. Even Sweden has moved that, where workers actually own their own retirement pensions. Bulgaria actually has already a second uh, pillar uh, in the system, which is uh, where uh, workers contribute to, uh, to, to a fund that is then privately uh, run. And we also have actually a third pillar, which is uh, voluntary, and that's mandatory uh, to do. And then we also have the classic third pillar, where uh, workers can contribute voluntarily also to... Uh, uh, to private funds, they can decide where to uh, where to put it. There are a number of uh, uh, funds. This is not that long ago, but a few years already. And that system operates by again by European standards. I think reasonably well. It's not. Uh, it's very far from the Chilean system, but it actually has some of its uh, some of its uh, uh, features. I think. The current issue in Bulgaria is that people simply don't work enough, long enough to generate enough cash before they retire to be able then to use it in some more market way along the lines of the uh, Chilean uh, model. Now, during the, this, this uh, financial crisis, not only in Bulgaria, in many countries, the private uh, pension funds have lost quite a bit of money. So that's putting the question of, okay, if you give the employees the right to decide where to invest money and then they lose a bunch of money, is it then the government responsibility to somehow recoup uh, losses in some way? And there certainly is that suggestion. In Bulgaria, at least, it's not fortunately that uh, that prominent. But I think we have in Bulgaria the, uh, the seeds of what can be a very successful pension system along the lines of what you, uh, what you uh, describe. Um, but we don't have some of the other ingredients, and we just need to put the other ingredients. And that has been tried by the previous two governments and has failed. Now, I think with the crisis, we have actually an opportunity to, to finish the initial design and then, of course, to improve, it, uh, to improve it over time. But we are quite aware of the Chilean model, and indeed we try over time, not in one go, but perhaps in two, uh, two steps to get there. We've got time for at least a couple more questions. Let's take one in the back there on the left, and then we'll come to the front. Uh, one question to Mr. Diankov on Bulgarian fiscal policy. Could you identify yourself? Uh, Anna Shitova, Federal Trade Commission. Um, I'm quite surprised that Bulgaria had a flat income tax. I understand it's the lowest in Europe, but wouldn't be in the current economic crisis um, as ways to increase uh, consumer spending to change it to a more progressive model, like in the U.S.? Um, that was also discussed in the context of some anti-crisis uh, measures. Um, indeed, the labor unions, um, this is their first thing. Anytime that there is a discussion of what to do, they first suggest uh, uh, that, crisis or not. Um, 
My view on that is that, uh, first of all, it's very difficult to administer. So the nice thing about the uh, flat uh, income tax is that uh, you don't need particularly smart tax officials to, um, uh, to do it. So 10% is 10%. Um, and you also don't need particularly uh, uh, accounting savvy entrepreneurs to do it either. So, so it's just simpler to, uh, to administer on both uh, sides. The moment you put a progressive tax, there is the incentive of saying, well, I'm not, I don't have that uh, amount of uh, revenue, so I have a slightly lower amount. Or I divide into two firms. So there are a variety of ways to avoid uh, a, progressive, uh, a progressive tax. Um, of course, this has been argued in many countries, and the only way to do it is actually to try one or the other mechanism. Bulgaria actually had a progressive tax until 2006, so actually the flat income tax is a relatively new phenomenon in Bulgaria. Interestingly, while it was prepared by a previous right-wing government, it was the socialists who introduced it in Bulgaria, the previous socialist government. Um, and uh, everybody, I think, a little bit like how well the currency board worked in, has worked in Bulgaria now for many years, everybody was surprised how, um, how after the abolition of the progressive uh, tax and the creation of a much lower uh, flat tax, uh, revenues rose quite substantially. In the first year, they rose by about 30%. In the second year, they rose by about another 25%. In the third year, by another 20%. Now, that was during times of increasing revenues anyhow because the world economy was doing, um, uh, doing well. But some neighboring countries didn't do that. They had the same average growth. Romania is an example. Uh, and they had much uh, much less growth in revenue. So by comparison, you would say actually the flat income tax in Bulgaria has worked uh, quite well, which is why it never crossed my mind to um, to change it. And in fact, I've been a big proponent of keeping it the way it is. And if any tax needed to be increased, it would have been the value-added tax. But even there, as I said, we've managed to convince uh, the rest of the government that's not a good idea. Yeah. Just, just one, one, one follow-up on the on the flat tax. You have to realize that in the context of Bulgaria, the bi the biggest problem in Bulgaria, uh, which has been endemic for some time, is corruption, and and the it, it, there are several ways to fight it. But but one is is what Simeon has referred to indirectly: the simplification. You want to make everything simple everything transparent and shrink the state as much as you possibly can. That, that, that those are the only ways that, that you can fight corruption, which is the, uh, in my view, and I, and I wrote President Stoyanov many memos on this many years ago, uh, this is really the Achilles heel of Bulgaria, is corruption. And so it's state shrinking, transparency, and simplification. So anything that's going to be, make anything more complicated and more opaque, I'm against it. <laughs> anything that's going to make the state bigger, I'm against it. Let's take a question here. Thank you. My name is Howard Segermark. I'm with the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Steve and perhaps Simeon might want to comment on this too. Your proposal for the Greek tax... Um, uh, would that actually change relative prices in the Greek uh, economy and thus provide greater incentives for uh, investment as well as enterprise? And secondly, if in fact they moved in that direction, 
don't they face the Eurocrats' um, opposition to tax competition? In other words, the fact that a lower tax regime seems is, is considered in, um, unfair to the high tax regimes of Europe. And, of course, this would, um, it would seem to be a, a Bulgarian problem as well if they would move to join the community. Well, on, you're, you're right. It, it would create a stir because you, you, I, I'm proposing to eliminate payroll tax contributions by employers. So there, there would be all kinds of European uh, noise about this. However, I, I also recommended, in, in effect, increasing the VAT in the sense that all these special reduced rates, well, there are only two special reduced rates, that you do away with those and... and like a flat income tax, you'd just have a flat VAT tax. And, and by the way, corruption, of course, the Bulgarians aren't kings in this field and don't have a monopoly in it. In Greece, this is one big problem that they have. Now, it would, back to your relative price thing, it would change relative prices. It would reduce the price of labor, and it would get... The, the informal sector is very large in Greece, and the informal sector, just like in Turkey, for example, is, is very unproductive. The, the formal sector is much more efficient and productive than the, than the informal sector. So by lowering the price of labor, you would, I think, not only expand employment in general, but you'd also get a shift from the informal sector into the formal sector. And, and increase productivity thereby. We have time, I'm afraid, for just a couple more questions. Let me go to, to that gentleman there first. My name is Tim Horton, and I'm not really connected with anything. I mean, I worked on the Ron Paul campaign, but my question is about, like, the, uh, the EU itself or the, or the way it's advanced its agenda. I mean, when they invented the idea for the euro... And, I mean, this applies to lots of things about the EU. When they invented it, it was about 1970, I think. But they didn't vote on it until about 1996. I think it was 1996. Okay. Well, during all that time, like, elite people in various universities and stuff like that supported such an idea were having their effect on the education system and things like that. Whereas a restaurateur, say, in Munich or a bicycle merchant in Tour, France, who would never would have voted for it when the idea was was invented, their children were being subverted by the elites who were basically, you know, the people that are the bureaucrats in Brussels or Strasbourg or wherever now. I mean, isn't that a factor about the way the whole EU works? And like some of the things that you were referring to about the way these people at the top are going to subvert you know, ideas that come from further west, like the U.S. or what, you know, our more libertarian ideas. I mean, the EU doesn't seem to be very transparent about the way they advance their agenda. Let me let me take a couple of, of questions, and that'll, that'll be it, and then let, let our speakers answer all of them at, at once. Right here in the front, and then after that we'll take uh, the, the lady in the back. Uh, thanks. My name is Andrei Sitov. I'm uh, with the Russian news agency Tartas. Uh, nice to see you, Simeon, again. Nice and uh, it's so refreshing to hear uh, not only uh, pundits but uh, 
actual public figures speaking straightforwardly. Uh, but uh, I wanted to spoil the fun a little bit here. Uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the debt crisis in Europe, and I'm not an economist, I'm a journalist. The debt crisis in Europe is the second wave of a global crisis that originated in the Wall Street that was a crisis of liberal capitalism uh, in the sense that it was the result of abuse of market freedoms, of uh, unrestricted operations with derivatives, with uh, uh, no connection between the pay of the, of the people who got paid and then the results of their work with no regard to the shareholders and all of that. Uh, so we, we basically, even people who are not experts like myself, uh, understand these basic things. So my question uh, to you now, to, to both of you, is uh, doesn't this uh, come into play when we discuss moving further along? And uh, doesn't it complicate the situation for politicians in practical terms because they need to react to public sentiment? And last but definitely not least, since you are economists uh, more than politicians, uh, economically speaking, is this a valid argument? What would you respond to people who tell you that, that we need to restrict this liberal capitalism because the excesses are killing the very system? Thanks. We'll take uh, the last question and then let the speakers respond. Christina Borisova, Johns Hopkins University. I have a question for Minister Jankov. Uh, first, thank you for your speech. I wanted to hear your thoughts on what is the government planning to do to address the problem of unemployment in the country? Okay. Start on the first well, I'll, more to you. I'll, I'll start with our Russian friend. Uh, I, 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 I disagree with your uh, characterization. It, it, it is a characterization that journalists, of course, repeat, uh, but... I view the crisis as one of government failure, uh, not market failure. And the, the main enabler for blowing bubbles and distorting prices in the economy was the Federal Reserve. And, and the, the main intellectual behind that was the current uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, who at the time uh, uh, was a member of the board, and in November of 2002, he gave his uh, rather dense but and technical paper on why the Fed should fight deflation, and that deflation was the number one problem that had to be addressed. And he convinced Chairman Greenspan and the rest of his colleagues that that was the case, and the federal fund's interest rate w was pushed down then by mid-2003 to 1%, uh, which at the time was a record low and stayed there for over a year. Now, this enabled uh, all the excesses or many of the excesses, some of, some of which you uh, alluded to in your remarks. So the Fed itself was a great enabler. And then you have also, what, what about the regulators? You you mentioned Wall Street. Well, Wall Street was was covered with regulators. You, there there were per, on permanent assignment, tens and ten, if not hundreds of regulators in all these banks looking over things. 
even even Lehman Brothers, they were looking over uh, very, very uh, questionable transition uh, transactions about uh, repurchase agreements and everything else. They they knew all about it, and they they never did anything. So that that's a regulatory failure. The the regulations were in place. The regulators were were on site. They had offices in the banks and everything else, and 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 they knew about the transactions. It wasn't that they were secret or anything. They had them in their hands. They didn't do anything. Uh, it, that's kind of the Bernie Madoff problem. <laughs> we the Bernie Madoff problem is yeah the regulators have more or less had been alerted to the thing several times and never really did anything about it. That that is not market failure. That's government failure. The same with the Fed. And we could go on about the housing industry and Congress pushing everyone into these uh, by trying to expand the home ownership that that mantra that was going on so i think all these things uh, my view is i i would just turn it on its head and say no it's government failure uh what does the government uh, say we of course deny any responsibility so uh, <laughs> so uh, it's obviously not our failure at least not this government um the the current crisis did to some extent uh, if you trace its origins outside of it actually it was bill clinton's idea with the subprime to let freddie mac and um, fannie mae to do subprime mortgages and this is i now that i participate in all the uh, european union discussions on financial services and so on which was part of the first question i'll get to it i'm starting to be more adept at uh, how you say things like i told you that if you say that it's mildly successful it means it's just terrible well subprime uh, mortgages is basically crap mortgages but you say it in a you know prime subprime um, uh, but it really but it really started with bill clinton essentially telling the uh, freddie mac and fannie mae okay you now need to basically uh, participate in this market of uh, subprime mortgages, and that's really how the current financial, at least, uh, side of the crisis started uh, started here. Did uh, uh, capitalism, in this case in the uh, face of uh, insurance companies, uh, investment banks, participate willingly and excitingly? Yes, it did. So, so it's certainly the case that uh, some of the uh, big players then, and continue to be some uh, big players, Goldman Sachs, it's not only here, Goldman Sachs and Greece, you know, and they certainly didn't do any any favors to the current situation. Um, so then the question is, so what would you do about that? And I've actually pondered this uh, uh, recently quite a bit in the in the case of insurance regulators in Europe and in the U.S. In, and in the case of banking regulators that uh, – can you do sort of better? How can you restrict it? And it gets to the point of you can restrict banks or insurance companies by basically banning certain activities or saying like in the Food and Drug Administration, uh, saying, okay, if you come up with a new product like Subprime, you're going to test it for two or three years like you test drugs, and then we sort of see whether it works or doesn't doesn't work. So that kind of a system, in principle, we have, uh, we have in some other products. The issue with financial products uh, in this case is that exactly how you're going to, to test it, who you're going to give it to. So it, 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 it's not the same as having, um, uh, as having drugs. So, so in the end, many countries have actually tried that to some extent, and they failed, and they've said, okay, we'll regulate more heavily overall. 
the problem that comes, which is not exactly corruption, but at some level it is it is corruption, uh, and it gets to the point of actually good banking regulators around the world. And I would argue that not a single country, certainly not the U.S., not the European Union, not anywhere else in the world have good banking regulators. And why is that the case? Because in banking, the returns to a particular new financial products are so large that you're basically going to bribe, so to speak, either directly or through getting them to work for you or having them as consultants. You're going to get you're going to bribe any regulator in many ways. So the people who remain to be regulators, and I would argue this across the world, are not the sharpest people. And uh, and uh, and once you end up with sharp, well-paid people on the one side and not so sharp, not so well-paid people on the other side, you're not going to be able to regulate uh, well. So I don't think the answer is regulation. What is the answer? Not not uh, not sure. Um, the first question: Why is the EU so non-transparent? I think most politics is actually very non-transparent, but the EU has the additional problem that it's. Uh, it's emerged from sovereign states. It's going towards some sort of a federal state. It's not there yet, but it's going towards a federal state, but it's very far from that. So it's even more convoluted than, uh, than the U.S. because you constantly need to seek consensus on most issues among 27 different governments, some of which are conservative, some of which are socialist, some of them are green, uh, greens, and uh, so on. And that's quite uh, difficult. And I can tell you, even on fairly well-defined issues like the issue of what do we do with, uh, with the euro, which was the point of discussion over the weekend, you get to hear 27 opinions, and some of them are well-balanced. Some of them you hear this and you say, this is really a finance minister, um, but you don't say it. You just smile and say, yes, yeah, a very good idea. So, um, so I think, in other words, uh, Europe is evolving politically, and I think that period will take a very long time until, until you get sort of a, a real um, political state emerging from uh, this in some form or fashion. And then I think it will be somewhat more transparent. And the last point on uh, unemployment. So um, Bulgaria does have an issue with unemployment. It's about the average issue in the EU in the sense that currently Bulgaria has 9.9% unemployment. The official statistics, the average for the EU is 9.73, I think. So we're actually quite average. Um, uh, in the EU, in other words, half of the countries have higher unemployment than we do, half have low. What do we do about it? We have, of course, a lot of programs for youth unemployment, for um, uh, secondary unemployment in terms of all the people that you can retrain to some extent, um, and so on. Um, skills, particular skills unemployment, all the, re the regular things that one can uh, think of and has thought of has thought of, but I think the more fundamental resolution of this is to say, okay, what are countries like us, European countries, let's say, that have done well resolving their unemployment, and let's do and learn from them. The country that currently has the lowest unemployment in the EU is the Netherlands, which actually got through structural reforms in the previous crisis. So we started learning what the Netherlands have done, They've done a number of reforms in the social uh, uh, social sector, and we are over time going to um, to basically use their experience uh, and try to do the same. There are no miracle things there. You just have to do a number of programs, test them. Fortunately, other other countries have tested some of them for us. 
uh, and implement uh, the way that they're implementing. So I think that, uh, and of course, let the private sector or the generators of, uh, of uh, jobs be sufficiently free so as to create uh, create new jobs. So no miracle there. Uh, we are average in that uh, score, and there is a lot more that we can do by just learning from the best. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time. Please join me in thanking our excellent speakers.